0: Hello and a very warm welcome to this special edition of Africa Brief from IFEX to mark the International Day for Universal Access to Information 2021. IFEX is a global network that promotes and defends freedom of expression and information. My name is Nazarene Jaru, IFEX's Network Engagement Coordinator, and I'm joined by my co-host Rihanna Masters, our Africa Regional Editor. And Rihanna, Today, we're delighted to welcome two very special guests, Gilbert Sendegua, Executive Director of the Africa Freedom of Information Center, and Lamin Jata, Program Manager of the Gambian Press Union. Karibu, Gilbert and Lamin.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Nazreen, and a warm welcome to you both, Gilbert and Lamin. Let's start by setting some context for our listeners. The right to information is a human right and an important cornerstone for people to be able to exercise their right to freedom of expression. The official theme of this year's UN Day is the role of ATI laws and their implementation to build back strong institutions for the public good and sustainable development. Unfortunately though, only about half of the 54 countries in Africa have in place legislation to guarantee their citizens the right to access to information. Although this number is growing, there's still much work to be done. Gilbert, can you help set the scene by giving us some practical examples of how access to information has helped everyday people across Africa?
1: Yes, uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Rihanna. Hello, uh, dear listeners. Access to information is very important for, uh, you know, uh, everyone. Let me start by giving an example uh, from uh, here in Uganda. Years back, uh, in 2012, uh, Afi conducted training of uh, citizens in a local rural district called Masaka. And following this, this, uh, this training, one of the women, called Margaret, in a place called Mpugwe, this is at a health, local health center. She made an information request for the number of times and how many doses in each time uh, medicine had, delivered, had been delivered to their local clinic uh, called Mpugwe Health Center. Now, what prompted her information request was because for two years, Every time they uh, fell sick and went to this health center, they would be told that there was no medicine for malaria. So following this training by Afik, uh, she knew she had the right to information and how to exercise it, and therefore proceeded to make information requests for those records. In her own words, she said that even if there had been an epidemic in that community, medicine would have been enough. This is after she had received records and examined how much medicine had been delivered uh, um, in that community so but before she got the records, the health center management called her, invited her to the health center and asked her, "Who have sent you to ask for this information?" She said that uh, she knew it was her right, and therefore it is herself that needed that information so When they gave her that record and she found that uh, medicine had been coming, she demanded that the records be posted on the notes board of that health center. Now, what happened was that between the time of making that request and the time we went back after two weeks for follow-up workshop, when she told us about this story, there was no reported absence of medicine at that health center. So, in a way, this case demonstrates that access to information can be a life-changing, a life-changing for many citizens, especially in rural areas, but also in urban areas as well, who, because of lack of information, do not access services their governments have paid for. What this demonstrates also is that information is good for citizens But also it's good for government because the services that government, you know, pay for can be received and enjoyed by the citizens for whom they are intended. Thank
2: you. Gilbert, that's that's such an amazing story. Mm -hmm. Um, But let's look at how can the lack of access to information impact people in a negative way, especially vulnerable and disadvantaged groups?
1: yes now thank you for that question we are now in a time of uh, a pandemic and you know this is the COVID-19 pandemic and what has been demonstrated is that information can be the difference between life and death when people have information they know how to prevent themselves from catching the disease but also importantly those when they get family members falling sick, they know how to care after them so that they can survive. And also resources that are donated and, um, and uh, appropriated by governments to provide you know, the much needed logistics and services to respond to the crisis are put to good use. When there's no information, the abuse is too much. Now, I cite an example here in Uganda, where the government was um, uh, under the IMF support, there was a commitment that they would uh, disclose information on contracts uh, that have been executed under this uh, framework. Now, that was not complied with, But what happened was that uh, one of the other commitments was that government would issue a monitoring report. Now, uh, in this report, which was produced by Minister of Finance, it was found that one of the companies which had been paid in June 2020 to supply oxygen to hospitals had not done so by November. Imagine, they received money Upfront, in uh, June, but by November, nothing had been delivered, and that's not uh, um, um, what also needs to be known here is that the owners of this company were highly connected people, people that have you know family relations with a, a first family, and also a powerful minister of foreign affairs, and also the process and procedure for selecting this company, nobody knows how they were selected. Therefore, uh, if the Minister of Finance had not issued this report, and uh, this had been under a commitment by IMF, so the report had to come out, this information would never have been known. And you can imagine the way oxygen was needed to save lives, lives were being lost. So I can say that lack of information can lead to loss of lives, can lead to uh, misappropriation and abuse of public resources. And uh, also, uh, it can lead to, in the case of procurement, you know, the laws being fraughted, procedures being fraughted, and, you know, procurement opportunities and tenders being given to companies that are not qualified. To, uh,
2: to make such uh, um, supplies. That, that's a very uh, concrete example of what lack of uh, uh, access to information can do. Thank you, Gilbert.
0: Turning to the Gambia, where President Andama Baru recently signed the new access to information bill into law, Lamin, this was a result of sustained effort over many years that by the Gambian Press Union and many others. Can you tell our listeners how this significant milestone came about?
3: Thank you so much. President Adama Baru signed the ATI bill into law on the 8th of August. And this is a culmination of five years of intensive advocacy and campaign for access to information in the Gambia. We see this as an important milestone on Gambia's journey to genuine democracy after 22 long years of dictatorship, military dictatorship. And this is a milestone because access to information had never enjoyed constitutional or legal guarantees in the Gambia. Of course, the Constitution, I mean, provides some guarantees to freedom of expression. However, that right to freedom of expression has been politicized and heavily misrepresented during the military dictatorship. So but how did this milestone come about? It all started in twenty sixteen, when the Gambia Press Union conceived the idea. I mean, this was even before the change of government that came about in December to December twenty sixteen to January of twenty seventeen. At this time the struggle for freedom of expression and information was heavily politicized, like I said, the military government saw it as a threat to peace and stability. And that's the information they were successful in inculcating, in, in if you like, into the minds of Gambians. And it got to a point that ordinary Gambians also began to see that, in fact, certain aspect of access to information is not even necessary in this country. That's how successful the military dictatorship was. But as the GPU started to mobilize funds and looking for partners in this drive for an access to information legislation in the Gambia, the country headed to polls in December of 2016. And perhaps fortunately or unfortunately for others, the military dictator was defeated. And the government that came to power was open, and the GPU saw this as a new opportunity to kind of recalibrate and go back to the drawing board to re-strategize, given the new friendly political environment, and also given the new partners and the booming civic space to re-strategize out of how do we get the access to information, legislation in the Gambia. So what we did was, uh, like I said, access to information at this point was politicized, misrepresented. So one of the first thing we began to do was to get to partners in the civil society. First, recruit like-minded partners, but do not stop at those people to reach out to the broader civil society, to decolonize their mind, to, to, to clear the myth that access to information, one, is for journalists alone, and two, it's against the peace and stability of the country we were successful in getting the civil society together. But already we found that we had similar interests or shared interests in the new government. The new government also had promised to come up with an access to information law, but the mechanism was not so clear. So at the beginning of the government or the government's time in power, they had also began to do what they call an access to information process. The civil society also was working on its own space. What the GPO done, uh, did was to make sure that these two approaches are matched, to tell the government that there is no need to have uh, different stakeholders working on the same thing. That also took time, but we were successful in getting the need or in getting the government understand that they should follow the civil society-led process because access to information has a lot to do with the citizens than the government. The government is the information holder. The people are the ones that rightfully needed the information. Therefore, such a process should be led by the civil society. Such a process should be led by the citizens. And there are a lot of lessons we, we drew from other countries, particularly in Nigeria, in Liberia, where their access to information journey was consultative, not only consultative, but was to a large extent led by the, led by the civil society organization. So that's the same approach we copied in conceptualizing the, the FOI campaign in The Gambia. We reached out to Tango, Tango is the umbrella body of civil societies and NGOs in the Gambia. And like I said, the approach for us was to make sure that these people also understand that access to information is not only about journalists, because in this country, when you mention or by a mere mention of information, people think it's only have to do with the journalists, or so access to information is only a law for the journalists. So we had to convince the civil society members through Tango first, they should join the Gambia Press Union. And why should they join the Gambia Press Union? Because access to information it's a legislation, it's a right for everyone, not just for journalists. In fact, I love the examples given by but because if you look at all those examples, there is not even mention of journalists or media. That means access to information is first and foremost for, you, for the citizen, ordinary citizens, before it is for journalists. And this was the same message we were able to send to Tango, the umbrella body of NGOs. They were opened up, and through them, we were able to recruit literally all the civil society and NGOs in the Gambia and some individuals that are also interested in good governance, accountability, they were also all able to join the drive. And together we were able to successfully campaign to have a to have an access to information legislation, which, like I said, was uh, the signing of the bill into law was a culmination of mm-hmm. all these efforts, effort by the civil society, efforts by the, 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 the Gambia government itself. Because this is the first time also, I must say, for the Gambia government and the civil society to work together. In the history of this country, the the government had never worked with the civil society on any legislation. For the first time, we were able to have a record. The civil society and the government working together from inception to enactment of a law in this country. And it's also for the first time in the history of this country, particularly in the history of civil society movement in this country, to have the civil society all come up together under one umbrella with the same purpose. And the purpose was to make sure that the Gambia has a legislation. For the first time, this is also happening in the civil society space. So for us, this is a major milestone in many fronts, Nazarene.
2: Um, yes, Laman. Uh, uh, you know, we appreciate the fact that, you know, it was determination on your part. It was about inclusivity and working with civil society and the fact that there was political will. Um, it so is- it's, a, it's, it's really great to understand all of this. So what we'd like to know is that for organizations elsewhere in Africa and indeed the world, you know, who are pushing for strong ATI laws, what were some of the secrets to your success?
3: Mm, I'll say perhaps three key things as far as I can see. One, it's the having the civil society together, galvanize the civil society together for a common purpose. Two it's the kind of collaboration we were supposed to build with the government. And three will be the sensitization of the masses. And just to elaborate a bit, if when I talk about the collaboration with the government, the tendency in our part of the world is, and rightly or wrongly so, is that we, particularly when it comes to the media and civil society, we tend to, I mean, view the government as, as an opposition. The government doesn't like what the civil society does. The government, it's, it's this, the government is that, in essence, the government stands for everything against the citizens that it is supposed to serve. The government stands for everything that the civil society stands for. But we took a slightly different approach. We, we decided to give the politicians and the party in power the benefit of the doubt. So we said, let's engage them, instead of just sitting down to say, you promised to do this, you failed to do it, and it's five years down the line, you have not done anything. Let's engage the government. And that strategy worked because when we engage them, at some point they opened up to say, look, even though we have promised this during the campaign, we don't have the expertise, we don't have the know-how to be able to come up with an access to information. That's where the Gambit President told them, look, this is good. So we don't also have the, uh, the, the, the expertise in house but we have the goodwill of our partners. We, have, we can also have the financial support of our partners. That is how... After the government already confessing to us that, look, they want to do this, but they don't have the expertise, for they know how. That's how we match our two approaches. And the GPU and through the civil society organizations, we reach out to some of our partners. And they were so forthcoming in supporting us with the technical expertise and the financial support. That's how we get to where we are today. In terms of mobilizing the civil society also, in a lot of our countries, the civil society operates kind of this area. We operate independent of each other. And sometimes we even duplicate each other's effort. So the GPU realized that perhaps we don't need to take that line. Since access to information is not just about the media, and we stood we stand for the media. Let's bring everyone on board because they all have a stake in an access to information regime, and that's how also we were able to galvanize and mobilize all the civil society on one umbrella. But beyond all these key two stakeholders, also we have the citizens who are supposed to be the ultimate beneficiaries. We cannot have an access to a successful access to information regime in this country when the citizens don't know about access to information. So the secret was also engaging these ordinary citizens across the rent and breadth of this country. It is not just the civil society or the Gambia Press Union. It will be the ordinary citizens that will be agitated enough to demand for this from any politician that comes to power. So for me, it is the culmination of all these three things that led to our success. And this is what I would refer to as the secret of our success. I'm in that's...
2: You know, it looks like you really thought about it very strategically and, you know, along yeah. the way adapted your your strategy and intervention. So uh, well done for that. Yeah. And over Thank to you, Nazreen. Nazreen.
0: Yes, um, let's zoom on to the wider situation across the continent. Gilbert, I know there are many countries currently in the process of adopting or implementing access to information laws What are some of the challenges they face?
1: Yes, uh, thank you very much. Uh, You know, um, especially after the MDG framework, the Millennium Development Goals, one of the learnings from that was that access to information and failed commitments had affected the actualization and realization of uh, Millennium Development Goals. And therefore, during the discussions and negotiations of the new sustainable development framework, access to information became one of the central issues that uh, w- was considered to be involved and included in this uh, framework. And this was followed also by um, uh, other um, uh, initiatives, like now the proclamation of September 28th as an international day, in Africa, we had had the African Commission on Human and People's Rights uh, uh, adopt a model on access to information and later on expanded uh, principles of freedom of expression and access to information in Africa. So, in a way, the wider um, policy environment at global and uh, continental level uh, has improved. But when it comes to national level, and indeed the number of African countries adopting access to information laws has been increasing from zero at the beginning of 2000 Mm -hmm. to now 26 countries. And hopefully maybe uh, this week uh, Namibia might pass uh, an access to information bill. So these efforts, um, you can note that uh, they have been slow while improving. Yeah. And uh, also when it comes to implementation, there have been some uh, uh, challenges. So what are some of these challenges in spite of this improved uh, policy framework? I think uh, the main challenge is limited demand for adoption and effective implementation of these laws. You know, it's like a chameleon whereby the chameleon responds to the environment that is surrounding surrounding it. So even with access to information, governments tend to respond to calls and campaigns by civil society, especially. So when there is no uh, demand, or when it is not effective, then... uh, our experience has been that uh, government will be slow in adopting and implementing access to information legislations. And across the continent, the Soros Foundation, that is Open Society Foundations, played a key role in supporting civil society campaigns and coalitions for our freedom of information laws. Unfortunately, when their strategy changed, uh, I think around 2017, the funding for this work declined. And you can see since that time, the number of African countries that have adopted access to information laws has uh, declined. Now, the second issue I could say is uh, there is now divided attention. Especially, you know, in the past two years, most efforts of governments have been and uh, development partners and civil society groups has been about uh, you know, being able to survive first and foremost. And uh, also related to this is a message around COVID-19 you know, has been receiving traction. And therefore what we see is that access to information has been recognized uh, as a critical part in responding to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. However, The priority has not been on uh, passage of laws, but rather getting information out to help people, you know, on prevention efforts and how to effectively respond. So, therefore, this divided attention and giving more uh, attention to, uh, um, you know, the need for people to survive, I should say, that uh, has also been a, a major challenge that we see. And the other one is that while the um, the policy framework has been improving, uh, from where I started on this point, awareness uh, by officials in the government, by legislators, by civil society organizations has been very low. For example, if you, you know uh, engage and talk to different civil society organizations on SDG sixteen ten two. Not many will know that there's this commitment and requirement by member states to do that. This new declaration sets out the principles. Principles that uh, the right information overrides other rights, for example, when there's a conflict, it provides for appeals, provides for specific and well-defined exceptions, uh, among other things. So this this is very helpful uh, in improving what uh, The law should look like, which was not there before. Secondly, it is also elaborate in uh, creating obligations of states' parties, which was not there before. And, you know, uh, when someone knows that they have an obligation, it is different from when uh, they are doing whatever they are doing as if they are helping anybody. Access information. On the other hand, is an accountability tool that requires officers and agencies to disclose information that they would otherwise not be willing to disclose for one reason or the other. For example, if it is going to damage the uh, image of the institution or the officer. Therefore, this uh, expanded declaration creates this obligation that this is public information that must be disclosed either proactively and or, or uh, reactively when people ask for this information. Another important aspect in the new declaration is that uh, um, the interp- the, now it covers, brings uh, in scope the issue of access through the internet before this was not provided for. For example, so, the Gilbert, uh,
2: you know, Gilbert, there's, there's obviously lots and lots of provisions uh, mm-hmm. in the um, uh, revised declaration, uh, but it's difficult in this particular episode to go through all of them. But I, I think, um, you know, you, you mentioned the fact that uh, one of the issues is that there has to be awareness on the part of citizens of their rights and how to exercise them. So, Laman... I know that this was a major focus for the Gambia Press Union and your partners. How did that process work in the Gambia? And you know, what do you think the lessons are for other countries?
3: Thank you so much for that question. I'd indicated that the Gambia Press Union in this access to information process uh, benefited from the experience of a lot of countries in the sub-region and outside of the continent. Uh, what we were principally looking at is few things. One is, how did they get to the point of having the law? But beyond the law, we are looking at what is responsible for the success of their implementation. Over the- and we realized through our analysis that most of the countries that have limitations in their implementation of their law largely have to do with the citizens' engagement. Because access to information law, the success will, I mean, depends on how citizens engage, interact with the law. And by that I mean through they are able to make requests for information, uh, they are able to access information that is proactively disclosed. And then out of all this analysis, we realized that I think access to information, the key or one of the key stakeholders is the citizens themselves. So based on that the government's desire, the union decided to focus a greater percentage of its funding and campaign with engaging the citizens, letting citizens understand what is access to information, how a good access to information should look like, what they should look at in the access to information regime. And we did, the, uh, we did this in, in, in mainly through this way. I told you we had a civil society coalition. In the coalition, we had eight clusters. Each of these clusters is looking at a specific thing in access to information. For example, the cluster on academia is looking at how access to information promotes research, help people in the academics, world to be able to have information for their purpose. We have a cluster on women and children. That particular cluster is looking at how access to information can be of particular benefit to women and children, particularly when it comes to reproductive rights and health of women. We had a cluster on good governance. That cluster is also looking at how access to information could benefit their own work. So in essence, all these thematic areas did an extensive research to see how access to information can benefit the people in their constituents directly so that the citizens that they also deal with can see themselves in the campaign. That is why we, and with that information, we went around the country at least two times in the process of our advocacy. We went across the length and breadth of this country to sensitize people generally about access to information, but how it can be of benefit to them. And if there is any lesson to be learned from these processes, we should make sure that we carry the citizens, I mean, from right across there and right at the, the starting process of our campaign. We should not wait until when the law is here We go to the citizens at that point to begin to tell them about the law or how they can use it. No, make sure that the citizens are involved from the word go. When you carry them through the process, in that way, the citizens also get themselves as part of the process. And as soon as the law is here. And the particular example is this. In Gambia, the law provides for about one year of grace period or an implementation period. The law is signed this August. That means it will take effect in August of 2022. But because of how citizens are empowered and see themselves in an access to information regime, as soon as the law was signed, we began to receive calls from people across the country, not just people in the greater Banjun area that is in the city centers, even in the villages, asking whether or not they can make their requests. We told them, no, the law is just signed, into, the, the bill is just signed into law, but implementation is yet to begin. But that speaks to the fact that they are, they are, they have, they are adequately empowered to make sure that as soon as implementations start, they make use of the law for their benefit.
2: Lamin, that's very good advice, and thank you very much for that. Um, You know, it's something that countries can take on when they start advocating and lobbying for legislation.
0: Indeed. And um, finally, before we wrap up, uh, we wanted to zoom in, zoom out a step further. Uh, and take a look at the global context. We are of course marking the International Day for Universal Access to Information, which was proclaimed by the UN General Assembly in late 2019. That was a huge milestone and a hard-won victory. It really was the result of a decade-long advocacy and lobbying strategy led by IFEX members and many others from across the African continent. I know both of you, Gilbert and Lamin, were strongly supportive of this effort. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how this win came about? And, you know, particularly, why do you think it was African organizations that led the charge on the world stage?
1: Yes, thank you very much for that question. Our thinking and uh, belief was that whereas access to information was uh, important for everyone, Everywhere across the world, lack of information was disproportionately affecting people in Africa. Uh, For example, uh, you know, uh, there is a lot of uh, secrecy in elections here in any country in Africa. And because of that, you know, the outcome of these processes have been disputed and in many respects led to wide-scale violence. There has also been uh, human rights violations uh, which go unreported and uh, unpunished, which then leads to impunity. The extraction of uh, mineral and natural resources in Africa has taken on for so long. But then, when you see on the ground, you don't see the effects of this, so disproportionate uh, impact of uh, Lack of information has been too much in Africa, and that is why us and other African civil society organizations felt to that. You know, a big platform on access to information would be very, very important to change this discourse. The first Pan-African Conference on Access to Information with UNESCO and with the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, this conference adopted the API Declaration, the African Platform on Access to Information Declaration. Among others, this declaration called for uh, a proclamation by the African Union, but also by uh, UNESCO, of a special day on access to information. Later on, in March 2012, we went to Banjul, the Gambia, where we successfully engaged the African Commission on Human and People's Rights to adopt Resolution 222 which, among others, called on the African Union to proclaim September 28th as the International Day for Access to Information in Africa. From there, we proceeded again with another campaign to UNESCO. and uh, After two years of uh, serious engagement, we had the UNESCO General Conference adopt uh, a resolution in 2015 November proclaiming September 28th as an International Day for Universal Access to Information and also calling upon the UN to do the same. Here to note is that this resolution was sponsored by three African governments, that is Morocco, Nigeria and Angola, with a full backing of the African group. And uh, after that, then we launched another campaign that took us four years from 2016 to 2019 for the United Nations General Assembly to uh, adopt this resolution. And after serious work, we had Liberia, the president uh, instructing the Minister of Foreign Affairs, you know, for Liberia to sponsor this campaign. And uh, after that, then we worked with the government of Liberia We hosted an important meeting, of course, which uh, was sponsored by uh, IFEX at the Uganda House uh, in July. I think it was on July 16th, where we convened um, permanent mission uh, to the UN and explained uh, the importance of this campaign. And in that meeting, you know, various countries and governments, you know, pledged to support and this was the change of the course. No wonder that uh, a few months later, we had the UN General Assembly adopt this resolution, which was sponsored by, I think, 29 countries and unanimously supported by all members of the UN.
2: That's, that's a fantastic achievement, Gilbert. And, and thank you for relaying it to us. Um, I, I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate it.
0: Indeed, what an incredible journey and milestone. Moving on to our last question, looking ahead, what are your thoughts on how commemorations like IDOI can bring in more diversity? How can we ensure that nobody is left behind as we pursue stronger access to information laws, whether in Africa or around the world?
1: Yes, this is a very important question. As we celebrate, we are reminded that... uh, That, uh, you know, there are people whose lives are different or have been lost because they did not get information in a timely manner. And therefore, that is why, for example, uh, it is important that certain groups like uh, journalists and media houses have, you know, the liberty to get the information on behalf of the people and channel it to the people, but also use it to hold uh, those with authority and decision-making powers accountable. You can imagine women who do not access health services. So therefore, having a platform like Edoi creates an opportunity to say that there are people who are not getting information. And yet, by them not having this information, they are disproportionately affected. And uh, in fact, uh, in Uganda here, we have already started the events, and uh, on Friday, we had uh, a a dialogue uh, and training for journalists. And, you know, the, the question of people not getting information was put to the minister the Minister of State for National Guidance, and he recognizes that, indeed, there is a need to ensure that, you know, uh, information is put in braille, for example, for, uh, for people with disabilities to be able to access this information, especially the access to information law and the guidelines. So I think by having this platform, uh, every now and then creates an opportunity to say, okay, what uh, advances have been made? Yeah. Who is not being reached? Who is not getting uh, this information? Who is not getting this service and why? And then by doing that, then you find that opportunities are created. Another I mean, issue that was raised was about uh, the widening uh, inequality gap. And from the discussion, it was rightly said that uh, public procurement is where governments spend over 65%. Governments in Africa spend over 65% of their national budgets through public procurement. And yet, women-owned enterprises take only less than 1% of these contracts. So the question was put, how can you fight inequality when a significant part of the population are not benefiting from this money? Because... 90, more than 99% of the money goes to male-owned enterprises. So again, discussions and recommendations came up to say that we need to have a mechanism for women to get information on procurement opportunities for them to be trained so that, you know, uh, they are able so to win contract. And through that, inequality can be reduced. Thank you so much, Gil. But
0: that's been... And just in, in terms of walking us through that, um, indeed, it really is important. Lamin, do you have any last thoughts before we wrap up?
3: Perhaps just to add, <clears throat> we should use the commemoration of Access Information Day uh, to continuously study the, the legislation that is in countries where the legislation is, to see how in principle and in practice this the, the, the legislation is meeting the needs of the vulnerable and the marginalized group. Oftentimes, when we are building the, I mean, the, the the legislation, we 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 usually think that we're capturing their specific needs because hardly are they represented on the table, but we think that we can think for them. We know what they need, and we'll have it captured in the law. But you only realize that you you they are left behind when the implementation process begins. So I think for me, these days should be used as one of the days to continuously reflect on the law in principle and in practice how it is meeting the needs of the vulnerable, how it is meeting the needs of the marginalized group, and how it is meeting the needs of the people in the farthest region. For example, in the case of the Gambia, in the most remote village of the Gambia, because they also have a stake in such a law. How is the law meeting their need? For me, that is one thing that we should continue, continue to reflect on, I mean, with a view to updating the legislation to make sure so that no, no one is left behind in the implementation of an access to information regime.
2: Thank you so much for, for your uh, insight, uh, Laman. And uh, Nazreen, this is a wrap-up, I guess.
0: Yes, it is. A very warm thanks to both of you for an insightful and spirited discussion. Listeners, you can stay in touch with developments regarding the ATI landscape on the African continent and the Gambia by following AFIC on Twitter at Africa FOI Center and the Gambia Press Union a GM Press Union. If you've enjoyed our discussion, please share it widely. And don't forget, you can now find us on ispeak.africa, a collective space for advocacy and media freedom hosted by our friends at Namibia Media Trust and Media Institute of Southern Africa. We're also on your favorite audio platforms, including Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Plus, you can follow our Twitter feed, at twitter.com IFEX to stay in touch with the latest free expression developments from Africa and around the world. Finally, don't forget that you can now send us feedback to africabrief at ifex.org. We love to hear what you think. Thanks to our producers, Aram Partap and Pako Lape. And thanks to you for listening. Have a great IDUI and see you next month.